Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Ireland to discuss non-invasive ventilation strategies in acute hypoxemic respiratory failure due to COVID-19. Hello, uh, my name is uh, Danny McCauley. I'm a clinical academic uh, working in Belfast, Northern Ireland, uh, with an interest in uh, acute severe respiratory failure. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, Danny. Today we'll be discussing your article published in JAMA. It was published online in January 2022, and it was entitled the effects of non-invasive respiratory strategies on intubational mortality among patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure and COVID-19. Yours was the Recovery RS randomized clinical trial. So maybe you could kick us off and uh, tell us why did you perform the study? Uh, why did you want to compare the effectiveness and safety of non-invasive respiratory strategies in COVID-19? Thanks. So. Um... I guess as we uh, headed into the pandemic, um, there was um, anxieties um, that I think we all faced around um, whether or not we would have um, enough uh, uh, ventilators to uh, deliver care for our um, patients. And in that backdrop, um, the the opportunities to use um, Non-invasive uh, respiratory uh, support strategies um, was was presented um, as you know a, an approach that we should all um, consider, and there was much uncertainty as to whether or not um, the the benefits and, and risks of of the various strategies um, were were well clarified. There were um, proponents of high flow. Uh, nasal oxygen, there were proponents of CPAP, and, and there was a, a big push to, um, particularly early on in the uh, pandemic, to potentially intubate patients earlier than we might uh, um, do typically. So it was in the setting of, of, of that clinical uncertainty that we wanted to um, try and answer this question. And that was supported by our um, UK chief medical officers, so they they were also uh, anxious to to know what was the right approach, and um, it was in that backdrop that they rapidly commissioned a trial um, that we were interested in in delivering to answer this question. Yeah, you're certainly right. There was a lot of uh, clinical uncertainty, um, and we were really concerned about the infection risk of COVID, and given the lack of PPE, we wanted to make sure that we were using the right strategy. Before we jump into your study, maybe you could just give the uh, listeners to this podcast an overview of um, CPAP, high-flow nasal cannula oxygen, and oxygen therapy, and what would the benefits or risks be um, prior to uh, commencing the study? What were the known benefits and risks? So that's a, um, a good question. Um, so, so I guess um, conventional oxygen therapy uh, with early intubation um, would be one um, strategy, and the the the, the potential um, risks associated with that are that we we know um, mechanical ventilation is associated with. Um, uh, poor outcomes, particularly when 
uh, it's delivered um, in an injurious pattern, um, so with, with higher um, tidal volumes and pressures. So avoiding uh, intubation is a good thing, um, as, as we know, um, where, uh, where we can safely uh, do that. And then um, CPAP, uh, obviously providing uh, higher mean airway pressure and improving um, oxygenation um, is one potential therapy that uh, might avoid intubation, but there are concerns that it might cause um, uh, patient self-inflicted lung injury. So with with, um, positive pressure, there may be very large tidal volumes that might cause um, harm. And then with high flow nasal oxygen, there was concern that that might particularly be uh, perhaps a a higher risk of aerosol generation uh, and as you mentioned uh, potentially for uh, nosocomial uh, infection and then in the setting of uh, CPAP and and high flow that the other worry was that the use of those may in fact delay appropriate intubation and cause harm so they were the the sort of um, potential um, issues that were being discussed. Um, If we have time, we can maybe come back to the issue of uh, aerosol generation risk, because that probably has been overstated uh, with with the non-invasive supports compared to conventional oxygen therapy. Oh, yeah, we definitely will come back to that. And then you didn't use BiPAP. In your study, um, you focused specifically on CPAP. So I wanted to ask you why you didn't include BiPAP in your study. And then the other question was, um, and, and we found out during the pandemic that obese patients uh, tended to have a worse outcome. What effect did that have in uh, the choice of CPAP or BiPAP? So in terms of BiPAP, I think we were... Um, influenced by work coming out of um, the lung safe study that um, seemed to clearly indicate that um, patients with ARDS now um, rather than COVID related um, ARDS had a particularly poor outcome, particularly in the setting of uh, severe uh, hypoxemia. So that was one major uh, factor that really influenced influenced us to consider CPAP and, and high flow. And I guess the other practical issue is we we, we went with the, the therapies that we felt were being used most commonly in the UK. And it seemed to be that CPAP and high flow were, were really the, the therapies that were um, leaking into usual practice uh, more so than, than, than BiPAP. Uh, so that was the, the rationale for um, not including BiPAP. It's clearly an important unanswered questions and we have studies like the the Brazilian renovate study that's going to address that question as well and one of the other advantages of undertaking this trial is that we've really been uh, very fortunate to work with many of the other investigators that are running these non-invasive respiratory support trials and as a result we plan to undertake an individual patient data network meta-analysis to try and get at um alongside the trials um, uh, and their individual results, can we get at the question that you're asking around um, BiPAP? I think the um, poor outcomes with uh, patients who are obese is is interesting and what drives that is unclear. And there there seems to be a bit of basic science to suggest that perhaps 
obese people have significant inflammasome activation as, as one potential mechanism. So they, they may be um, a population that has an even greater host response um, in, in terms of response to, to COVID. That didn't impact particularly on our decisions to use uh, CPAP versus BiPAP, but certainly it, it's an issue that uh, we, we were aware of. And it was one of the a priori uh, planned subgroup analyses that, that we looked at as well. Gotcha. And then in terms of the contraindications, so um, there, there are contraindications for CPAP and high flow. Uh, what are they? Um, and then we'll jump into your study. Um, so in terms of um, uh, um, contraindications to high flow, they're, they're relatively limited and, and probably um, in the vast majority relative rather than absolute. Um, in terms of um, uh, CPAP and uh, BiPAP, um, I guess the, the major um, contraindication relates to the potential risk of aspiration. So where um, patients were at particularly high risk of aspiration, we were keen not to include them. And that was one of the reasons why we excluded people um, who were uh, pregnant uh, from the, the study. And you, I think we're, we're all aware that um, patients probably inappropriately who are pregnant are excluded from, from clinical trials, and we, we don't generate data in that um, uh, area. So we were very careful and considered about deciding whether it was the, the right thing to do or not. And we took advice from obstetric uh, uh, expert colleagues as well. So, so really the, the major um, contraindication that we were concerned about uh, was risk of aspiration. So those at higher risk, we excluded. And then I guess the other um, contraindication is where you can't um, manage the interface associated with uh, the non-invasive respiratory uh, support, so facial trauma, for example, but that was a, a much less common uh, issue for us to um, consider. Okay, so then let's jump into your study. Um, what were your study methods? You obviously investigated um, high-flow nasal cannula oxygen, CPAP, and oxygen therapy. Uh, what were your methods, um, and what were your inclusion and exclusion criteria? Okay, so <laughs> it was a, an open label. Uh, uh, randomized controlled trial, and it was a an a it was planned as an adaptive design using um, group sequential design, and what that um, was intended to do was allow us to um, look as we were uh, going through the 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 trial for early um, signals of of benefit or harm. So so that was the um, uh, primary um, methods. I'm happy to come back and talk about those in, in, in more detail. And then in terms of the, um, the, the, the population that we were um, interested in, so it was patients with essentially acute hypoxic um, respiratory failure due to uh, COVID-19. Um, and um, we wanted patients with increasing oxygen uh, requirements. So it was really those who had a, a, a saturation less than um, 94% with an FiO2 equal to or greater than uh, 0.4. And we also wanted people who uh, were appropriate to be escalated to intubation. So they were the, 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 the key um, inclusion criteria. 
And then we um, randomize patients to uh, CPAP, high flow, or conventional oxygen therapy in a one-to-one-to-one ratio. And it's important to to sort of highlight that patients weren't randomized um, against each of those interventions. So it was CPAP versus conventional oxygen therapy or high flow versus conventional oxygen therapy. So we were trying to answer the question, which of those um, uh, strategies was better than conventional oxygen therapy? We, we weren't powered um, or designed to look at the comparison between um, uh, CPAP or uh, high flow. And that's a question that, that, that comes up um, quite, quite frequently. And the reason why we're not able to do that comparison is because the, the, the groups of, of CPAP and high flow aren't randomized in the same, in the same way. So, so the, the control group um, was, the, was the standard care, if that makes sense. Oh, it does. Well, then let's talk about your outcome. So you used a composite outcome as your primary outcome. Um, maybe you could describe that for our audience. Uh, so the uh, primary outcome was a composite of uh, tracheal intubation or mortality within 30 days. And I think um, it's important to understand the limitations of a composite outcome. Uh, and, and there are limitations. And again, we can uh, discuss that in, in more detail. Typically, um, whenever you have a, a composite, um, the, the two outcomes need to to weigh roughly the, the same. So being put on a ventilator and mortality were, were both important outcomes to, to the patients that we um, discussed this uh, trial design with. And also typically you, you, you want to see the magnitude of any treatment effect go in the same direction. And, and clearly, you know, where you have uh, one component of a composite going one direction and the other going in a different direction, you can lose the, the potential uh, sight of a signal. And we felt that um, these both uh, components should go in the same uh, direction. So that was the, the sort of um, background to the, the, the primary outcome. In a perfect world where you can do the perfect study, it's probably best not to have a composite outcome, but we really wanted to generate information that was important in the setting of a pandemic as quickly as possible. And, and that was really the driver for uh, perhaps compromising perfection of a single primary outcome of perhaps mortality versus uh, using a composite to get information that could inform patient management as quickly as possible in the middle of a pandemic. Gotcha. And then in terms of crossovers, because uh, in your study, there was significant crossover. It occurred in about 10 to 20% uh, of cases in each group. Um, and then also there were a number of patients who actually didn't receive the randomized treatment uh, that occurred in 5 to 10% of the patients. Um, what was your plan to analyze them? And maybe you could comment on crossovers and those that didn't receive randomized treatment. Yes. So um, picking up the um crossover first and again it's it's a it's a limitation of of this type of of study um and um we, we sort of expected that there 
um, would be a degree of crossover. And, and I guess one approach to, to limit that happening would have been to say, let's define the criteria at which we will intubate patients. And, and as um, every ICU doctor um, uh, will, will, will know, trying to get agreement or, or define when the right point uh, of intubation is, is very, very uh, challenging. And, and, you know, it's not just about meeting a number, it's, it's the whole package of, of how the patient uh, um, looks. So we felt it would be artificial to um, define those um, as, as our primary outcome. What, what we did try to do, though, um, was two things to deal with the, the crossover. So the, the first issue was we wanted to collect the physiological status in the 60 minutes prior to intubation to try and get some reassurance that people weren't making biased decisions around uh, when to intubate. And, and certainly uh, what we did see was that um, the, the physiology of, of the patient's were similar in all three groups prior to intubation. So that was um, one approach. I think the other um, issue around crossover is that if you um, have a treatment that works and you cross over to that treatment in the other arm, theoretically that should, if anything, reduce the side of the size of the effect that you see in the um, effective arm because your control arm will be getting that effective therapy. Now, that, that has to be taken cautiously because there may be some non-random effects happening in terms of who crosses over. But again, the fact that we saw an effect despite the, the crossover provides um, some reassurance um, as well. And then the, the final uh, approach, there's an analytical approach that we took, which tries to um, manage uh, crossover um, as, a, as, a, as an exploratory analysis. And again, the, uh, the findings were um, consistent in terms of uh, the, the, the result that we saw with um, uh, CPAP compared to high flow. In terms of the, okay. um, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Danny. I was just going to say, in terms of the um, patients who were not um, allocated to treatment as randomized, that I think that is a, a limitation of the study that, that we have to um, acknowledge as well. Sure. So, Danny, let's uh, jump into your key findings. Um, what did you find in your randomized trial and how did you interpret it? Um, so, what we uh, found was that um, the primary outcome was uh, decreased in the CPAP compared to um, conventional oxygen therapy. So um, we, we found that uh, roughly about 44% um, of patients in the conventional oxygen therapy, uh, 44 to 45 uh, reached the primary in the conventional oxygen therapy, whereas in the uh, CPAP group, that occurred in 36%, and, and that difference was significant. We didn't see any difference in the um, uh, high flow group, and the, the incidence of the primary outcome was about 44% in the high flow um, group. So that was the, the, the headline finding. Um, 
below that then looking at what the components that make up the uh, primary outcome in terms of um, tracheal intubation and mortality, um, we, we saw that really the major effect was in terms of reducing the need for uh, intubation and mechanical ventilation. So the, the driver of that composite uh, primary outcome benefit was in reducing the need for uh, intubation. And I guess the, the other point that there was no difference in mortality, and that, that's a, a very clear finding, although reassuringly, the point estimate of mortality was for it to be lower in the CPAP uh, group. Um, and, and the reason I make that point is we, we, we were concerned that CPAP might uh, avoid intubation, but f- as a result could also delay intubation. And in the setting of delayed intubation, you might see increased uh, mortality in that group. So we were reassured that we, we found a reduction in need for intubation um, alongside no difference in mortality in those who were um, on the CPAP group. So your study would suggest that CPAP is beneficial compared to um, uh, regular oxygen therapy. However, there are some skeptics who would argue two points. Um, one, the fragility index. Um, in order for your studies not to be significant anymore, you just need four patients to cross over um, from the CPAP arm to the uh, oxygen therapy arm in, in terms of um, uh, not finding a benefit anymore. And you did have a number of patients who did not receive the allocated treatment and had crossovers. So I was hoping you could comment on that. And then the second uh, point that someone may make is there are a lot more complications in the CPAP arm in terms of pneumothoraces, pneumomediastinum, and vomiting requiring intubation. Maybe you comment on that, Danny. Yeah, no, no. I mean, both <coughs> both important points. Um, and I think in terms of the uh, fragility of the finding, it, it's an important point. And it, I guess it talks to the bigger point that we, um, to some degree, were under powered. So we had initially um, planned to try and recruit um, just over 4,000 uh, patients. Um, and we recruited uh, almost 1300 in the end so we, we didn't achieve our our sample size so that again adds to to that fragility and and we made a very difficult decision without access to the um uh, data to, to emphasize and it was with the input of our independent uh, trial steering committee whenever the numbers fell rapidly after the the second wave we we, we wanted to share the information as, as quickly as possible. And, and that was part of the reason for putting it, our results out as, as a preprint as well, versus delaying what would be you know, useful information, even if under powered, um, uh, to get it out into the community and, and impact therapy. And as it turns out, we had a, a finding that was uh, um, significant. We, 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 we didn't know that. Um, so I think we made the, the right decision at the time by good by good fortune probably um so so i think um that ad- hopefully addresses the point that I, I think we acknowledge the the limitation of the the fragility of the information and you know uh, the, the the approach that i think this study allows us to make is that probably the right thing to do 
is start with a strategy of CPAP. Um, I, I think it would be overstating um, the results to say it's black and white. Um, I think it's overstating black and white in medicine <laughs> at the best of times. So probably uh, is where we get to with, with our data. In terms of the complications, I think that's easier to deal with. And I, I you know, I think we we do see uh, more frequent complications in, in this CPAP group. Um, one of the challenges with any open label study is that there tends to be over-reporting of complications in an open label study. So if someone um, has a pneumothorax and they're on conventional oxygen therapy, people may say, oh, well, that's just due to the underlying disease. Whereas if they have a pneumothorax on CPAP, um, they say, well, that must be due to the CPAP. So, so there's there's always a risk of, of biased reporting, even though we mandated reporting uh, across all three arms, that, that's always a, a potential um, risk. And then I think even though there were higher complications and, and complications that make biological sense as well, for example, as you say, vomiting and, and uh, um, air leaks, that didn't translate into harm in terms of uh, mortality again. And, and as I say, that's one of the reasons I was so reassured that the point estimate of mortality went the direction that, that, that you know, suggested benefit, even though there was no significant benefit in terms of mortality. So I think to summarize those um, two points, I think you're absolutely right about the fragility and, and the, um, the, the data uh, allows to make a, a probable uh, recommendation. Um, uh, but in terms of the complications, I'm less concerned about that. And then in terms of the mechanism of benefit, so how would it be that CPAP would benefit patients uh, compared to uh, regular oxygen therapy? And as a converse of that, um, why did we not see a benefit with high flow? And what would be the reasons for that? So, so we're now entering the realms of <coughs> uh, supposition. Um, uh, I think that's important to say. Um, I think the most likely is differences in respiratory mechanics in the setting of COVID-related ARDS. And there, there may be a degree of recruitable lung that was uh, helped with um, uh, the CPAP as an intervention that the other two interventions didn't um, deliver. Now, as I say, um, that, that's a theory and, and is uh, unproven. I think there's probably more to it. And, and I guess, you know, the work that Carolyn Calfi has done in terms of phenotyping um, and showing differential responses to PEEP uh, in terms of uh, hyperinflammatory and hypoinflammatory phenotypes. And it may be that there were um, differential responses uh, even within the, the subgroups according to phenotypes. And we know, even though um, we thought at the outset this was a homogenous disease, that you know, we know that these phenotypes also exist uh, within uh, ARDS due to um, COVID. So um, I, I'm, I think it's really important that we look at mechanisms within um, trials as a default. Um, and any trials I'm involved in where possible, I, I try to get at a, a mechanistic question as well. 
unfortunately, in the setting of, of, of the pandemic, we really just couldn't get at, um, you know, bio sampling to help us try and work out was there a mechanism we could get at in terms of the the the, the trial findings. Um, but um, maybe in the future, whenever we do further CPAP studies, we might be able to get at that. Gotcha. I mean, in terms of the risk of aerosolization, you mentioned this uh, towards the beginning of the podcast. Um, there's obviously a great fear uh, that certain um, oxygen therapies, non-invasive ventilation strategies may increase the risk of spread of infection to uh, care providers or, or others. Um, how would you interpret that in light of your findings? Yeah, so um, absolutely understand the uh, initial concern about aerosol generation and both infection uh, to patients and, and caregivers. However, I think we've probably been slow to debunk some of those myths um, as we have had additional uh, data. So although not a mechanistic study, we were very fortunate um, uh, along with uh, Chris Green, who's based out of Birmingham in the UK and a, and a, um, a group of other investigators, we were able to try and uh, actually look at um, the air around the patients who were receiving each of these three interventions and see could we detect either um, RNA in terms of uh, viral particles or even better live virus uh, in collaboration with uh, Wendy Barkley from Imperial and her team. And interestingly, and I think this is one of the really um, nice additional findings that have come out of the study. Interestingly, um, we, we didn't see any differential risk according to being on uh, what was thought to be an aerosol generating procedure in terms of uh, CPAP or, or high flow. So I think that's um, quite important. We, we know from our um, uh, surveillance studies in the UK that um, in ICU, there was a lower incidence of seroconversion in terms of healthcare staff in ICU compared with, with the wards. And I suspect that was a feature of the fact that um, even though aerosol generating procedures were managed with full uh, protective equipment, those who were coughing on the ward, those patients weren't treated in the same way. So, so I, I think you know that highlights that, in fact, these aerosol generating procedures are probably no higher risk than a patient sitting on an oxygen face mask who is coughing. And it really means that we should probably be treating all patients as if they were um, uh, potentially uh, at risk of, of uh, spreading nosocomial infection. Gotcha. And then, uh, Danny, there are no perfect studies. Um, in, in your uh, um, discussion, you mentioned some important limitations um, of your randomized trial. Could you share those with our audience so that they, and that they are aware and they can take light of that uh, when interpreting your study? Yeah, um, I think that's right. And I think we've um, touched on um, uh, some of those limitations um, already. So I think that we uh, failed uh, to reach our planned uh, sample size, that uh, we um, had uh, substantial numbers of patients who did not receive their intervention as randomized and crossed over, even though we tried to uh, manage that um, 
analytically. Um, in terms of um, the uh, fragility of, of the findings due to the um, uh, sample size and the fact that we didn't protocolize um, either the need for um, uh, mechanical ventilation, so that might um, open up to some um, uh, forms of performance um, bias. Um, so I think they're probably um, the, the main ones that I would um, highlight whenever people are uh, interpreting the, the results of the study. Thank you. And then in terms of, um, with the benefit of hindsight, um, now the, the, the trial is completed, uh, what would you have changed? Uh, what would you have said, you know what, maybe we could have done this a little bit better? And just bearing in mind that if we do have a, another um, uh, outbreak, or if another pandemic occurs in a couple of years' time, uh, they, would they would definitely benefit from uh, your expertise and understanding of uh, what could have been done better in your trial. Yeah, so I, I think um, recruiting more patients, um, you know, the decision that we made to stop in the setting of the falling uh, numbers, um, I think um, uncertainty would have been reduced by having a, a larger sample size as it um, always is. And then I think probably as a secondary outcome, so I wouldn't make this a, a primary, but as a secondary outcome, uh, we probably should have tried to uh, define a standardized point of need for intubation. Um, and again, that would have been a, a useful secondary analysis. I, I, I don't think we could have mandated that people were intubated at that point, but I think we probably could have got a, a consensus definition as to a point at which people could be defined as needing intubation or not. So I think that would have been a useful uh, secondary analysis. So uh, a larger study and, and a, a more robust secondary outcome around uh, defining need for intubation. Maybe you could comment on that. Um, uh, you obviously used need for intubation as, a, as part of your composite outcome with mortality. Some may argue that um, the previous uh, big trials uh, looking at steroids um, focused on mortality as the primary outcome, um, whereas you did not. Um, although being intubated is a significant event, we've seen numerous patients being intubated and then go on to survive and live and return to almost uh, normal life although it was a very protracted and prolonged course. Maybe you could comment on that. Um, in your methods, you argue that uh, intubation and mortality uh, have a similar um, uh, weighting, but some may argue, you know what, they're very different. No, no, it's, it's a valid point. And you know, one of the reasons why ventilator-free days has, has limitations because it weighs being alive at 28 days as the same as being um, uh, dead uh, on a ventilator. So um, I, I think the problem that I think our study has informed as well is that given the um, magnitude of effect of these interventions on mortality would appear to be relatively small to par a study for mortality um, would be very, very challenging, not impossible. Um, and, and there are studies that have recruited, you know, very large numbers of patients. So, so I guess it's the, the challenge of doing a mortality study in the setting of a relatively small 
treatment effect that we now know um, is, is likely to be the case off the back of the findings um, from this study. So I think that's why mortality is, is different, is difficult for these interventions. That said, and you're absolutely right, um, you know, we, we know many patients who receive mechanical ventilation who go on to, to survive. But whenever you talk to patients and you know, one of the things we, we, we did was speak to patients about what were the important uh, patient-centered outcomes for, for us to consider. And we also um, you know, were involved in developing the, the core outcome set for uh, trials uh, of, of mechanical ventilations. And repeatedly, patients emphasize that being on a ventilator is very difficult for them and all of the long-term effects that that, that um, leads to as well. So I... I struggle if I was doing this again, would I do a mortality study if I could versus a study looking at duration of, of uh, ventilation or need for uh, intubation. Um, and I think um, I'm not sure what the right answer is there. I think there's pros and cons of both approaches. Yeah, I agree. It's a very a tough decision. So, Danny, you've been very generous with your time. I do want you to um, leave our audience with any uh, concluding remarks. And also, you know, what does this study mean for you in your clinical practice? Or how do you think it should inform clinicians um, about the use of non-invasive strategies such as CPAP, high flow, and conventional oxygen therapy? Danny, your final words. Thanks. And uh, thanks again for the invitation to talk about our study. I, I guess um, I have to admit I was a CPAP skeptic, you know, so I uh, embarked on this study uh, worrying that we might be causing harm with liberal use of uh, CPAP. But in fact, uh, as with many of my hypotheses, I was completely um, wrong. So I, I think the take home message is, is that um, probably uh, for patients who have an increasing oxygen requirement, um, in the setting of uh, COVID-related uh, uh, respiratory failure, that an initial strategy of CPAP is likely to be the, the best strategy. Um, so uh, hopefully I have enough caveats there that, that it doesn't sound black and white. I, I think it's also worth defining again the population. So these patients were eligible for escalation to uh, mechanical ventilation and, and, and in a palliative care group setting where that might not be appropriate, um, we, we don't know if CPAP or high flow is the right treatment. So it's, it's specifically in the, the population that, that we stutter, studied and it's important that we don't extrapolate um, beyond that. So uh, I guess that's my uh, take home message. Then one last question because of what you mentioned. So um, when putting someone on CPAP or high flow, um, you'd obviously advocate for uh, folks to come back and reevaluate the patients, make sure that there's no complications, make sure uh, that the therapy is working. Absolutely. And I think um, that's one of the um, major unanswered questions and we haven't really been able to get at, you know, so we've shown what the initial strategy um, seems to be in terms of using CPAP, but, but how long do you leave someone on that non-invasive respiratory support isn't clear um, on the basis of evidence. In this study, clinicians seem to make good decisions. And, uh, you know, as I say, that the physiology seemed to be fairly similar across the groups. 
but when's the right time to intubate? We, we really don't know. And, you know, I think we all have seen patients where um, um, patients received non-invasive respiratory support were left on that for prolonged periods, but, but seemed to manage okay, but then eventually tire intubated in an emergency and, and potentially end up in ECMO and, and, do, and don't do very well. So trying to work out where the sweet spot in terms of intubation is, is I think really a hard question, but as you rightly say, absolutely reviewing the patient regularly is, is key. Benny, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to our audience. Um, for our audience, we discussed um, his article published in uh, JAMA Online in January 2022, and it was entitled The Effects of Non-Invasive Respiratory Strategies on Intubation and Mortality Among Patients with Acute Hypoxemic Respiratory Failure and COVID-19. Danny, congratulations to you and your team for an outstanding publication. You take care. You too. Thanks very much. A big thank you to Dr. McCauley, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.